0: Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And they're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project is, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done. Well, that's what you want, right? I'm uh, thinking about building out my basement in my cabin. I've been perusing Angie looking for just the right contractor to get it done the way my wife and I want it done. Now, Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and right in your neighborhood. That's important, right? You can do comparative shopping. Get started today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I or download the app today. The app and the website are free to use. Angie.com or the Angie app. Go check it out today. Hello, America, and happy Thursday. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from just the news. We've got a great show for you today. Two great guests back to back right after this. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. It has been just a few short days now that he learned that he is formally the Republican nominee for a House seat in Washington state. We've had him on this show many times before. He achieved one of the most unexpected wins, I think, in the election knocking off an incumbent in Washington state who had voted for impeachment. He is none other than military hero, Joe Kent. Joe, great to have you back on the show.
1: Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here.
0: What was it like to watch a race carry on for a week after voting before you knew the outcome? It's got to be pretty nerve wracking.
1: Yeah, I'd be lying if I if I said it wasn't uh, kind of high stress. I mean, we we, we knew election night wasn't going to, you know, have, have any kind of final results just because we do the mail-in ballots and all that. But we sure didn't think it was going to drag on for a week or so. Um, they counted the ballots in a very slow deliver process. So it was a nail-biter. We had, uh, you know, a little bit over $4.5 million dropped on our heads uh, at the end there. So it really came, came down to, you know, a couple thousand votes were very, very decisive. So very grateful for for all the support. And uh, yeah, we, we pulled it off there in the end.
0: Yeah. And do you feel now, I mean, obviously when you have a big high profile primary like this, there's there to be hard feelings between Jamie Herrera Butler and you, but is the party united going into the fall? Do they have a good strategy? We're all coming together because it's more important to win this seat and win the election.
1: It, you know, I've been really uh, impressed and very grateful to all of my Republican opponents. I mean, right away, uh, Heidi St. John, who was also on America First, uh, Republican. We actually, folks don't know. We had five Republicans on the ticket, and it's a jungle primary too. So she came out right away. Um, she in- endorsed me. Told all her people, hey, it was a hard-fought, you know, race. But let's all rally behind Joe. Jamie Herrera-Butler, she hasn't formally endorsed me yet, uh, but she it, And she, she conceded when it was obvious she wasn't going to pull forward. And, you know, she had the resources that she could have really drugged this thing out, you know, paying for recounts, lawyers and whatnot. But she did the right thing as well. Um, and so I think we have a lot of unity. I've been endorsed by most of the major uh, central committees. I have uh, schedules to get, you know, and get on the calendar for endorsements the other ones in the district. So I've been really impressed with how everybody realizes that, hey, right now we have to unify. Republicans have to get unified because look, the, the thing is, the opposition, the Democrats, the administrative state, they are in complete and total lockstep. So they got their gay game.
0: <laughs> they do.
1: That's no, remarkable.
0: What are you seeing? I, we hear, all, you know, people often are dismissive of the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. Ah, it's always going to be blue. But there seems to be a lot of growth in Republican registrations in Washington state, Oregon, What is your feeling about the growth of the Republican Party in a a pretty blue state?
1: You know, I, I mean, people all the time because Seattle has the uh, the population hub there. But the rest of the state, once you get, you'd be people would be surprised. You get 15, 20 minutes outside of Seattle, and then we we share a border with Portland, Oregon. We're down in Southwest Washington, and so Vancouver shares the same metropolitan area as, as Portland, Oregon. And so you get a little bit outside of Portland in any cardinal direction, especially to the north where I am, uh, where our district is, and it, it is it's deep red. It's America. It's traditional values, and and so I really think that we we kind of echo a larger trend. And throughout the country where you have these blue states because of the concentration of like a major urban hub, but then you get outside there. It's red America. It's the same America as, you know, Texas and Missouri and all these places you would think are, you know, just bastions of conservatism. We're the same way. But then also what we have going, you know, in our favor is that the, the policies of the far left have really been exposed in a very big way, especially during COVID. I mean, Jay Inslee, our governor, kept Washington state locked down. You know, uh, just as long as New York I call him the Cuomo of the of the West um, And so that brought That and then the summer of 2020 The riots, the CHAZ I mean, that was right on our doorstep From Portland and to our north in Seattle There's just been a lot of folks Who have said, hey, you know I, I never thought that I was going to be a Republican I always thought Republicans were kind of like mean But right now I'm seeing that the, the Democrat Party they're, they're really authoritarians And they won't tolerate any kind of dissent They want everyone to get in lockstep Like we just talked about And they want to keep my, my kids out of school Masks on their face vaccine mandates. If you question any of it, you'll be canceled. And so that's bringing people over to our side in in a very big way. And then also, I mean, the very basic question of, are you better off now or were you better off two years ago? I mean, that's really hard for the Democrats to argue against. And that's bringing a lot of people who are just being destroyed by inflation over to our side. So I think we're going to see a really big groundswell throughout the country, but really in a lot of places that I think people had thought are traditionally, you know, just a a safe zone for Democrats.
0: Yeah, I'm picking up little little... fragments of that, that there's going to be some tectonic shifts beneath the normal alliances that we see in voter blocks. Uh, Hispanics seem to be very important in play. Catholics seem to be important in play. Blue-collar workers. Do you think the Republican Party is ready for the alliance that it can put together? And this could be a generational shift. Do you get a sense that from the national level right down to the, you know, the county level that people are ready to put together this new coalition? It might look a little different than prior elections, but They have the pieces and they know how to put them together, you think.
1: You know, I, I think prior to uh, the, these primaries, I think there was still a, a real strong pull with the GOP establishment that wanted to go back being, you know, Wall Street's favorite party. They wanted to be the, the country club Republicans. And, and they really, I think, still didn't understand 2016. They didn't understand what, what Donald Trump did. Obviously, it was, you know, the force of Trump's personality, but also Trump really reached out to a lot of people, like you mentioned, the working class in particular, and said, hey, I, I'm going to fight for you guys. I want secure borders. I want to bring jobs back from overseas. I want to start putting you guys first. And, and I think a lot of Republicans weren't ready for that. But right now, if they can read the tea leaves at all, like you said, 80 percent or so of the Trump impeachment voters either decided not to show up and play again or they got defeated. And if you look at the candidates that are winning in this cycle, it's America first, you know, nationalists, populists, like we're fighting hard on the Trump agenda. And so I, I think the big GOP is going gonna, is gonna to start to get that and, and also, I think the, the raid in Mar-a-Lago, I really think a lot of more establishment Republican types. I think they, that was kind of a wake up for them. Like, hey, this isn't politics as usual. Like the, the, the stakes are very, very high and the other side's not playing around. So I, I think we're seeing a major realignment. Um, I, I, I hope a lot of the hard fighting is over and we can just unify to take on the, the, the serious issues and become the working class party uh, of our country. Uh, and that's just what we have to keep fighting for.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. From the time I started my career 32 years ago, it's almost as though the parties have flipped. The Republicans are much more in tune. And then the corporate leaders are much more in tune with the Democrats now. And it's like, oh, what did that happen? It's a really remarkable time. And I, I think people are going to wake up the morning after this midterm election realizing our world has changed. This is a big change. It started in 16, but 2022 is the final manifestation. What's the key for the final race? I mean, it's a good red district, so you should do well. But what's the key for Republicans all around the country to close the deal and make sure that they've got the majority they want in the house.
1: You know, you big time. I think it's unity. I mean, we did just come through a very hard, hard fought primary cycle. My district in particular, it was split five ways, but the unification is essential just because the stakes are so high. But also I, I, I think people do really need to assess where is the Republican Party right now? What does the Republican Party stand for? And I think the Trump policies, those things aren't like you know esoteric theories anymore. The Trump policies were putting our country on the right trajectory. The America First policies were. And now we're seeing the absolute reverse, the opposite of that. Joe Biden puts America last every time. And look how bad our country is right now. Look how much people are hurting every day. So I, I think the Republican Party is just we have to embrace this, this uh, America First agenda. We have to be the nationalist party, the populist party that's fighting for the working class people. And a lot of that is going to fly contrary to traditional conservative beliefs that we should always put, put Wall Street and corporate interest ahead and, and some, you know, uh, trickle down economics and maybe just some tax cuts. Like we're going to have to do very big systemic things to the country with bringing back manufacturing, you know, offensively using tariffs. I think really being that the true pro-life, pro-family, working class party um, It's a calling for us, and I think we know how to do it. There's a lot of good templates out there for it. But a lot of it, it's going to fly in the the face of the traditional orthodoxy of the Republican Party. And I think we have to embrace it.
0: Yeah, no, it's so important, isn't it? It really is to acknowledge what is ahead of you and embrace it and then execute along the clear lines that voters are giving the Republican Party. There's a clear message to the Republican Party. It's really exciting to watch. It's hard to believe it's already been a year since the withdrawal of our troops from Afghanistan, the 13 troops who were killed at the gate. I keep thinking that there's a piece of testimony happened about four or five months ago that didn't get the attention of the media. It is. But it's the CENTCOM commander saying, I asked for 2,500 troops. I was turned down by President Biden, and it was a mistake. That was his exact words. It was a mistake. Do you think... Official Washington has come to grips with just how bad the Afghan withdrawal is and its long-term consequences are for the American people.
1: I don't think they have. I mean, I think because they've gotten a pass, really, for twenty years of failed policy. That ba- and the media was so much, you know, in, in the pocket of the Democrat Party and Joe Biden that the disastrous withdrawal it basically got stuck in the memory hole. I mean, if you talk about it now, people are sort of like, "Oh yeah, I guess that kind of happened," at, you know, a, a year ago, and that culminated a twenty-year disaster. But because there's never been any accountability, I think it's actually crazy to think that we'd have accountability for the withdrawal. And so I think it's gonna be incumbent upon us when we take over this new Congress to say, hey, this this isn't over. We we have very real questions about why this happened, the manner it happened you know, we know that the Pentagon, the DOD, it, this is squarely at the feet of Joe Biden. He's the commander in chief. However, there is 20 years of lies that came, you know, imploding uh, in our faces on, you know, one year ago with the withdrawal. And so I, I think a lot of these folks, you know, for, for General General McKenzie to say, well, if I just would have had 25 more, 100 more troops, then none of this disaster would have happened. Like that whole thing is preposterous coming from the Pentagon. The Pentagon's been lying for 20 plus years. And so it, it's, a, it's a byproduct, I think, of us having an all-volunteer force that the war wasn't deeply felt in, in all of America. And so I think our political class just think, well, there's only a handful of people that really follow national security out there. They're the only ones that care about it. So we, we can just get away with it. We move on. And then we move on to the next thing. And what's the next thing? Well, let's send billions of dollars to Ukraine. Let's exacerbate the conflict right there. We might end up getting into some sort of a nuclear conflict with Russia. And so... If we don't rein this in right now and and use the lessons learned from 20 years of war and a disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan, if we if we don't reflect on those and make real reforms, we are literally going to fall for the exact same traps once more. Or in history's tragedy to repeat itself. But I think on a much larger and more catastrophic scale, because the stakes are so much higher when when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China.
0: Yeah, it's so remarkable. And uh, there's a moment yesterday, I I, I was thinking of you when this happened, and I saw this morning you addressed it, but there was a a reporter, uh, supposed to be a neutral journalist named Edward Luce, I'm sure he comes from the famous Luce family, who wrote that he's never seen a more dangerous group of people in the world history. I think he was just exactly I've never come across a political force more nihilistic, dangerous and contemptible than today's Republicans. First off, you have to be shocked that that's a journalist expressing opinion, but what was more shocking was when General Michael Hayden, the former CIA director for George W. Bush wrote, I agree, and I was the CIA director. Now, you, you and your wife both stood up to extremism, and she lost her life fighting ISIS. You had, what, a half dozen, dozen tours of duty in the theater zone. When you hear a former CIA director compare Republicans to those sort of extremists, what goes to your mind?
1: I mean it's preposterous and insulting but it's also very telling. I mean Michael Hayden he's a he's worth following because he basically says the quiet part out loud. Um, you know, like you said, my, my wife was killed fighting ISIS in Syria. She was killed a month after Trump tried to get our troops out the first time. And I I saw firsthand, I actually, I did 20 years in special operations, and I transitioned right into a career as a paramilitary operations officer in the CIA, I was a full-on CIA officer um, before my wife was killed. And so I, I got a front row seat to see that the senior political level leaders of the national security state, whether they're in uniform at the Pentagon or whether they're heading up the, the CIA. Um, or various intelligence agencies. Their their culture is very much DC institutionalist. They really have a lot of contempt for your average Americans, and, and Donald Trump was the embodiment of that for them. And for Trump to come in and say, hey, you guys have gotten a lot of stuff wrong. I'm going to start looking over your shoulder. I'm actually going to have, you know, the people provide some oversight of our intelligence agencies. They were to, to say they were deeply offended is putting it mildly. I mean, they they felt that they were under assault, and so they worked to undermine not just President Trump, but they worked to undermine really the American people every step of the way. And and so this just shows the contempt that the elites, people like Hayden, hey, and you know he he likes to beat his chest that he's some sort of a you know CIA NSA operator, you know, but the, the guy really. Just a professional bureaucrat. He was you know a general level, general level, uh, Air Force officer. So the the people, the crazy thing is the people that he despises these so-called Republicans. If you look at the ranks of the special operations community, the infantrymen that are out there fighting the wars, the paramilitary operations officers, and a lot of the hardcore, uh, I'd say career operations officers that are out there, you know, actually risking their lives to collect the intelligence that he was in charge of. A lot of those people have conservative values. A lot of those people are Republicans. Not not all of them, but but. they're fighting for the American people. And then for him to just go and be a political operative while he was still in uniform, while he was the director of the CIA, while he was the director of the NSA, this just shows you, you know, exactly how weaponized the national security state has become against the American people and against any political opposition to these institutions. And the institutions obviously are represented by the Democrat Party.
0: Is there a danger when someone as prominent as a CIA director, an NSA director, because he was both uses such language. I mean, literally suggesting that a party affiliation in America is the equivalent of an ISIS terrorist. What does that do to the populace? We always hear about, oh, don't agitate the populace, but this seems to be quite an agitation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold. I, I think for one, he's speaking to a you know the the Democrat progressive audience and who they, they have the utmost reverence for these institutions, and so they'll say, oh my gosh, this guy who was the director of the NSA and the CIA, like if he said Republicans are as just as bad as ISIS, well then that that gives me justification to other them and to say that hey, whatever whatever means are necessary to go after these guys, then we have to do it because they're just as bad as ISIS according to the so-called experts. They are they're always deferential to the experts, but then I also I also do think right now it's deliberate. They are trying to trigger and to provoke people on the right into saying, hey, it's all hopeless. We control every single aspect of power and we're coming after you. And they want us to become so disenfranchised that we stop voting because that's even more powerful than any kind of election fraud. If you can disenfranchise just a fraction of conservatives from participating, or they're trying to provoke you to, to do or say something dumb Um, to justify turning the tools of the national security state against you right now. So I I encourage people all the time, don't take the bait. Do do exactly what they fear, and that is participate in the Democratic process and beat them at the ballot box because that is what they truly fear.
0: Yeah, it's funny to watch the Democrats embrace Mike Hayden because I'm old enough to remember when the Democrats reviled Mike Hayden accusing him of breaking Americans' privacy as the NSA director. And then he had made a dismissive remark about Senate Chairwoman Diane Feinstein, calling her too emotional to be a chairman. And the Democrats jumped him. Now they love him. And there's another one in this category that blows my mind away, because I covered the Cheney family for a long time, Vice President Cheney, Liz Cheney. Democrats hated them. All of a sudden, Liz Cheney's like the
1: hero of the, the left. What the heck? How did that happen? I think it just really exposes the fact that, you know, we, we've had this illusion of a choice for a very long time that we thought like, well, if you vote for a Republican, he'll do something different than the Democrats will. And, and I think a lot of that for a very long time was just theater and in and, and the post Trump Era Trump really exposed the controlled opposition that was the Bushes, that was the Cheneys. They're all essentially working for the same, you know, globalist ideology. And, and you know, the Obama, to a certain extent too, because Obama on the stump, he said he was the the, the anti-Bush. He just bashed Bush 24/7 every wrong in the country. It was Bush's fault. But then when he gets in, if you look at the policies, there, were, there was very little daylight between Bush policies and Obama policies. Yeah,
0: That's one of the great secrets of Washington, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so the, the mass just dropped and now you have the Democrats who are like, well, actually, we, we, we do kind of like the, the Bushes and the Cheney's because, you know, they're, they're the good Republicans. They're the Republicans that never really never really fought back. But at the end of the day, they were still pushing for the exact same corporatist, globalist, you know, agenda items that, that we are. Yeah,
0: it's remarkable. They, You know, you talk to people and, and you know, I hear this and, you know, when I go to Wisconsin and I hang out with folks in the blue collar parts of Milwaukee, like it doesn't matter what party's in charge. They're all the same. And that uniparty idea is becoming more and more prevalent a thought no matter what person's political ideology. And I think now what people are voting for is to just throw out the establishment elites and give us something like the people that feel and look and talk like us. And I think that's what is exciting about your campaign. You really have connected with them. There is a lot that goes on in the next few weeks. You just saw the House take this extraordinary action, 740 billion dollars in more taxes, more spending. What is your prediction what that legislation does to everyday Americans?
1: I mean, I mean just looking at the, the legislation, I mean, it's going to raise taxes for working-class Americans, not to mention the 87,000 new IRS agents who for some reason need to be a bunch of them need to be armed and they need to be trained to use lethal, lethal force. Um, who, who are going to start going after Americans making less than $200,000. I was watching one of the training videos that uh, I think it was Thomas Massey put up on his his Twitter and, and literally the scenario they're giving these guys is to go after a guy who runs a landscaping business. Like that's who these IRS agents are, are trained to target. It didn't, I mean, th- this Inflation Reduction Act, and it, it didn't do anything to actually reduce any kind of inflation. Uh, energy independence wasn't touched in this. So the Democrats, they have a great way of titling things and they have this great way of speaking in, in very compassionate language. but. at the same time just running the exact same scam on the american people so this obviously was just a series of corporate kickbacks and then it's it's not going to reduce inflation whatsoever it's actually going to raise taxes so i think unfortunately the economy is just going to continue to get worse and worse regardless of what biden does of our strategic oil reserves so he's going to make gas move what down 20 cents he's going to pat himself on the back it's still twice as much as it was when he when he took office and absolutely crushing americans they're lying about inflation you know they're redefining what a recession is we're going to see more of the smoke and mirrors. And, and unfortunately, I mean, we are in a very bad way. This is why I think when we, and when we, not, not, not I think, I know when we get into Congress in 2023, we have got to fight the Biden regime as hard as we possibly can. We cannot let any more bills like this get passed. And if we have to shut down the federal government, we, we need then that's what we have to do. We have the power of the purse strings. We have the power of the appropriations process. We have to start offensively using that to, to make sure that the American people can get some real relief. I, I think day one, I've, I've said this before, day one, when we get in there, we have to say to the Biden administration, you're going to reverse all your day one energy policies to give the American people some relief at the gas pump, or we're simply not going to fund the federal government. Like, this is not sustainable, what you're doing right now, to to hardworking people just to fill up their gas tanks to get to work or to get to the grocery store. It was
0: those hardball tactics in the 90s that led Newt Gingrich to get the sort of deals he got with Bill Clinton that gave us welfare reform and those sort of things. But it sort of fell out of vogue. I mean, Republicans have been afraid to shut down the government fearing that it's always going to fall back on them but you know history shows that the 1990s where we ended up with a balanced budget and welfare reform and many other things that's hardball was played by the Republicans back in that time. It's really remarkable to see how much Republicans have forgotten. it's good to hear a new generation remembering that all right so there's a $7500 electric vehicle tax credit in this bill that you know that the Democrats say is the end-all be-all it's suddenly going to make electric vehicles more affordable now of course, We have another problem, which is the grid is not ready for it. We just talked to the energy secretary, and she just told us at Just the News, we're going to publish this tomorrow. The grid's nowhere near ready. But here's the big one. They just passed the tax credit, and what has Ford Motor Company announced? Like two days after they pass it, they're raising the price of their electric vehicles, particularly the, the new electric pickup truck. By 8,500. So we just, America's just lost $1,000 on that deal. What is going on in this EV world, this electric vehicle world? It seems like a mirage.
1: The whole thing's a scam. I mean, really it, it, twofold. It, it just shows, I think, how out of touch like our elites are when they're like, well, if you have a hard time <laughs> affording gas, then just buy a $60,000 Tesla. But it also, I mean, like most of them, most Americans don't live in a major urban hub that has a grid that even if you could afford, like for me, even if I, if, if I felt like going out and dropping 60 grand on a Tesla. There's like, one te- there's like one EV charging station in my entire district. And, and folks in, in my district, they, they commute, they drive, or we're suburban, we're rural, and the grid's just simply not ready for it. Look, I have no problem with, with green energy. I have no problem with electric vehicles and all that. I just have you know two, two conditions. One is that we make it here in America. So right now, everything with EV is a massive payday for the Chinese Communist Party because they control the raw earth, minerals, and all that type of stuff. And so we can't re- reward our number one geostrategic foe with that. We can't make ourselves further dependent on these guys. But then also the grid's got to be ready. Look, we, we pretend with this whole, all this green energy that we have to do it like right now, we pretend like we've never done transitions of technology before. I mean, right now this would basically be the equivalent of when we were converting, you know, from horse and buggy to uh, motor vehicles that we just said, okay, on this day, we're going to get rid of all the horses. Horses aren't allowed on the streets anymore. We, we, we didn't do that. We had a gradual transition once, you know, the system was ready for it. And right now there just isn't the capacity for any of this. And so it just shows there's, They're using this to to grandstand and really just to take away, I think, more sovereignty and more power from your your everyday average Americans, and they they simply don't want to deal with getting us back to being energy independent. And again, everything with energy independence goes back to benefiting American people, whether it's American jobs or giving us more affordable energy or really just you know flooding the world market with U.S. Petro that's going to take away commodities from some of the world's worst actors, whether it's OPEC or Vladimir Putin. So, I mean, it's it's a major issue. And I think we just have to fight this uh, with reckless abandon because the Democrats and this green agenda, all the green agenda is just one big smoke and mirror thing for the Great Reset because cr- climate crisis Crisis will always be the, you know, the existential crisis that we have to fight, and we have to do these draconian uh, transitions, you know, to green energy, um, which really just it, it really affects our economy and our sovereignty.
0: Yeah, it is remarkable the moment we find ourselves, and really, the essence of America as we've known it for 246 years is really on the line in this election. Do you have a sense when you talk to voters, and you've done so much retail politics, you've been on the road constantly meeting with the real people of Washington? that they have the same sense of urgency that you do. Your urgency is palpable. When you talk, you feel that passion for America. Do you think voters realize that their next few decisions are perhaps monumental course changers for the, the future of this country?
1: I really do. I mean, and that's why I think we saw so. My, our primary that we just had in Washington, it, uh, it, the participation in this primary exceeded the general election of 2020 in a presidential year. Yeah, it's amazing. And so that just shows you how engaged people are right now. And, and, and so people can really feel that, hey, this is not, your normal midterm this is not even your normal like election cycle that the stakes are high and this is why we're seeing so many people come out in droves and are just participating in the political process whether that's showing up at school board meetings whether that's doing you know we we had a huge medical freedom issue in our in our state just because the state was locked down for so long and so those issues are continuing we're still technically under emergency orders in washington state because instantly ridiculous and but we have a a groundswell of activism right now going on in the state I, i think most people are involved in some way shape or form in grassroots politics um in a way that we've never seen before in the country and so i and people are really starting to understand how intertwined all of these issues are they're understanding that hey it's not just bad economic policies that have gotten us into this inflationary cycle um, it's, it's deliberate action and this deliberate action is being done for a reason that these people drastically want to change the way that our country is and how this is all intertwined to what's going on in this of critical race theory, the, the comprehensive, you know, groomers, sex ed. Um, and so, so different people get awakened at different times on different issues, but it's all bringing them up into being, being engaged in the political process. And you can really feel it. Like, I, I think we won our election because we got out there and we engaged with people, and that's what people want to see. They want to see authenticity. They, they don't really care. I mean, we had, we had a lot of ads that were dropped on us, and we couldn't compete because we didn't have the money. But at the end of the day, people really didn't care. They cared that we were out there, and then we had a real authentic message. Actually went out and talked to them, and then we and then also you you can feel it when you're out there, people, because it's it they they understand the stakes are just so high right now, so it's uh it's very exciting to be a part of. Um, but it just shows us, hey, this 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 onus is going to be on our back, and we're gonna have to deliver.
0: Yeah, such a great point. It's one thing to say what you're gonna do; it's another thing to do what you said. And I think that's the the voters, if they give Republicans this chance, that's going to be the most important thing. We can't have a another few years without an immigration solution, without you know border solution. And so it's it's going to be fascinating to watch the reaction. The last question, because I know how busy you are, as you step back right now and you know that people are worried about what their kids are being taught at school, what the cost of everything is, and they can't live anymore on, on the budget that they have. Now they got a big IRS coming after them to just add to their aggravation. It seems as though the question two years ago was, Do we want a big government to protect us? And Joe Biden came in and said, listen, I'm going to make big government efficient. It's going to protect you. You're going to love it. We're 19 months into that big government experience. And it seems like the question now is, do you want to get big government out of your life? Do you think that's the question that underlies all these issues that big government messed up so bad? Let's go back to smaller government.
1: I think it has to be. I mean, I mean. But the Constitution is the perfect blueprint. We've just strayed so far from that. But look, every time we try to do this massive government big solution, it's just resulted in more power in Washington, D.C., more power for unelected bureaucrats, the administrative state that endures regardless of who we elect. We saw that with President Trump. Um, and, and so I, I think we're going to need to use uh, the tools of the federal government to reduce the size of the federal government. And that's going to be really hard to do. So this, this is why we have to take over from the inside. And I think we're going to have to really start fighting for for smaller government at, at every level, you know, getting, you know, giving parents more autonomy by getting rid of the federal Department of Education, supporting school choice, supporting school vouchers, those types of programs. And then we have big systemic issues with the economy that really go back to the Fed. The Fed's a major issue. The Fed has resulted in an a massive consolidation of power that's undermined the sovereignty of American citizens. Like we have to do something about that because our economic system is on the verge of collapse. And so we're, we're going to really have to fight from the inside to start reducing the power of federal government, get the federal government back to really just worrying about what's prescribed in the Constitution, you know, having a, having a budget, defending the country, uh, trade deals, those types of things. But other than that, I mean, everything should be down at the state level. And I, and I truly believe that. And I, I think a lot of a lot of ways that we're going to make that happen too is antitrust and anti-monopoly laws going after the the technocracy, breaking up big tech, going after you know a lot of these hedge funds that are just fleecing America, whether it's you know BlackRock, Blackstone buying up housing um, is to price Americans out of the housing market. Like this is what we, those those are the fights that we need to be having as opposed to trying to meddle in everyday Americans' lives in the way that the Biden regime is trying to do right now. So it, it's going to be a really hard fight. This isn't going to be solved, I think, in one or two. Election cycles. I, I think we're in a you know a period where all the easy solutions, all the easy answers were like 15, 15, 20 years ago. We just kicked the can down the road, and right now we're in this this period of conflict and strife, and we're going to have to fight our way through it. The only the only way out is through.
0: We got to go back to our roots, and I think that when you and I watch you on the campaign trail, you have that unique dedication to what America was actually rooted in: in freedom and small government protecting that freedom. And you put it on the line. You did it, your wife, and you both did it. And I think that's going to make you such an extraordinary member of Congress. Joe, it's always an honor to have on the show. Congratulations on a big win. And I'm sure we'll be watching all the way to Election Day as you navigate the final stretch of this big election. Thank you very much for having me on. Always great to be here. Great honor to have you on, sir. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after this. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. I always turn to this gentleman when it's time to understand the complexities of the amazing FBI. There's so many things the FBI does every day, but it's hard to understand. It's nuanced. A lot of people think it's black and white. It's a tricky world, and Kevin Brock has made it so, so accessible to all of us. He's the former assistant director for intelligence, in fact, the first assistant director of intelligence ever in the FBI, and really one of the guys who is able to call balls and strikes every day, and he joins us again today. Kevin, great. To having the show again.
2: Well, thanks, John, and thanks for the introduction. No pressure on me at all. <laughs> oh, you live up
0: to it every time. You're fine. Big news just happened a little bit ago. Breaking news. Magistrate reinhardt Judge Reinhart, has agreed to release part of the affidavit, the FBI affidavit, supporting the request for the search. Your impression that, uh, that he was going to do this? I think a lot of people are guessing he wouldn't do it. What's your take on it?
2: I was one of them. I'm surprised. Uh, but, uh, and I haven't been able to absorb everything that was written about this, but I think it—I think it kind of bolsters the argument that most of the wind surrounding this Mar-a-Lago search is in Donald Trump's sails versus the government's sails. Um, the perceptions—the perceptions that have been created—and exclusive the presidential search of a former president. That uh, even even some of his detractors uh, had their eyebrows raised. So um, and and then, despite the commentary that you're hearing from uh, that part of the media that aligns with the left, that um, you know the seriousness of class, being in a position classified documents, uh, presidential records that should have been turned over, and that type of thing. Uh, when you really examine the law, and when you really examine case law and prior judicial decisions uh, that you pointed out as recently as yesterday in in some of your articles, um, the president has an amazing breadth of leeway on a lot of these topics, Uh, so much so that it would be be hard to imagine a court actually convicting Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, who as the lone person in the United States that has absolute authority to declassify and who as president has um, a broad uh, say over what is a presidential record and how it should be maintained and that type of thing, it it stretches uh, credulity that the government can bring a case where they're actually going to see a conviction. So with that in mind, it begs the question, why did they pursue it in the first place? And 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 that's what a lot of people are scratching their head over. If if this turns out, John, to be what it appears to be, and that is a basically a document dispute involving some fairly low-level federal statutes, um, then the per, the the perception that uh, this was pursued as a political campaign versus one seeking justice uh, becomes more real in the minds of, of, of people. And uh, and if it's not, if it wasn't pursued for political reasons, then you have to start questioning the the um, capability of those who made the decisions without factoring in the incredible political ramifications and fallout that this would engender in, in at least half the country.
0: Yeah. I and mean, that, that calculation doesn't seem to have been thought through very well Regardless of the factual basis and the legal basis, which I think will get some visibility into the government has a week to redact this document, give it to us. But you said something I, uh, you helped me so much over the weekend as I was writing a story and you said something that I always forget. But, you know, there's this incredible thing called the DIOG, the FBI agent. Man. It's the Bible for FBI agents of how we protect civil liberties and still do great criminal investigations. That's what the FBI does you mentioned to me, and I wonder if you could help me describe it. It's very important in the philosophy of the FBI that search warrants be construed to be as narrow as possible, no more than what you absolutely need to investigate the crime. Is that the philosophy of the dialogue?
2: Well, I, it's actually beyond the dialogue. It's constitutional, and it's it's case law, and it's it's been it has been defined with fidelity throughout the years as different cases have bubbled up through the Supreme Court, and. And we reached a point, rightly so, in this country to where we want to make sure that the Fourth Amendment protections from unreasonable search and seizure are defined uh, to include what's referred to generally as the scope of the search. It's one thing to get a warrant and, and say, we're going to search your house because we think you broke this law. The courts have held that you you can't, that's not sufficient. You have to be able to articulate what it is specifically that you think is being held in that residence that's evidence or fruits of that crime and and you should articulate that in the document and then um and then the searchers are limited to to that scope so they they certainly they can look in reasonable areas of the residence where documents might be found and there's some leeway that's given in that regard um, but they can't just start uh emptying desk drawers into bags without even looking at it. Uh they've they've got to be able to look at it and, and justify in their minds why it's responsive to the search warrant. And so the attachment B on this search warrant of Mar-a Lago is very interesting. Uh and and it talks about what can be seized. Uh, you know, records constitute evidence, contraband, fruits of the crime. It cites three Title Eighteen federal statutes. That may, basically have to do with uh document retention uh document storage document transmission um that type of thing, so it's very document focused and 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 it lists four things that that the um uh, the searchers can look for. I don't have a problem with three of them one of them seems to me overly broad and and that's uh point c in the attachment b and it says any any government and or presidential record created between January 20th, 2017 and January 20th, 2021. In other words, Trump's term in office. So any any government or presidential record created during his term, you can seize. Um, it, that to me seems overly broad. There should have been a little bit more specificity. He's going to have, and every president's going to have, mementos, photographs, um you know handwritten notes that are you know personal in nature that can be construed to be a presidential record. And uh and so it, it almost looks like revenge of the National Archives. <laughs> they just they feel like you know, we we want to we want everything that was ever created in his presidency, uniquely his presidency, because they haven't demanded it from other former living presidents. And uh, and so it, it it allowed the searching agents basically a, a hole that you could drive a truck through, and I think that's going to become a, a, a as I'm, I've mentioned before. I think that provides runway for Trump's attorneys to to argue that the search was overly broad. Yeah,
0: uh, the, the, a lot of people I'm talking to have the same assessment. The interesting is you practice as you as your profession, and I know you're a big fan of the FBI. It's hard to imagine, and the people I've interviewed have said this to me, it's hard to imagine how an FBI agent could have walked out that day with the president's passports or how he could have walked out with photos. When you look at the early things that have now been confirmed, the Justice Department has confirmed they took the passports and returning it. What does it tell you about what went on in that search? Because it doesn't seem like anyone would mistake a passport as a presidential record.
2: If I'm an FBI supervisor or a leader of a field office and this search is going on, particularly this search, Uh, this isn't a drug dealer. This is not a gangbanger. It's not a a white-collar criminal. This is a former president of the United States. If I'm going to send in 30 armed agents, then I better have some experts in there that understand evidence recovery, what evidence is, understand the letters, the, the, the four corners of the search warrant, and are inspecting everything meticulously to make sure that what's being seized is within scope. Obviously, seizing passports is not within scope. It suggests some carelessness, uh, which is unfortunate, Um, but it also gives rise to questions. Well, if they they were that careless to just grab somebody's passports that have nothing to do with what's being ordered to be searched for, then what else did they grab? Yeah,
0: that is a big question. And did you ever have a case in your FBI career or ever remember a case where there was a criminal investigation into basic records?
2: Oh sure there I mean records are searched for constantly particularly in financial crimes areas where there's a a heavy production of of documents most most records now are digitized uh it's rare to that you walk out with boxes and boxes of paper documents uh searching somebody's home or office uh you you're walking out with computers basically and uh, hard drives and CPUs. So um but yes, there's been many, many searches that are are heavily document intensive. But even those cases, John, if it's a if it's a Ponzi scheme or if it's a fraud or something like that, the the search warrant will be specific as to the types of bank records they're looking for and uh, transactional records and pieces of communication, it'll spell out with some specificity uh, that's a little bit more narrow than what we see in this, this uh, Mar-a-Lago search form. Yeah, no, it seems
0: absolutely that's the case. Kevin, as you step back now, this is going to sort out over many weeks. There's going to be legal challenges. There's going to be the unsealing of some portion of the affidavit. For Americans who want to keep their confidence in the FBI, try to understand this, what's the best thing we should be watching for? What are the next facts and questions we need to tackle.
2: Mm, Great question. So um, this will play out uh, through the courts now because that's where that's where it resides. The next step, the next logical step would be a review of that evidence to determine whether or not uh, the government has enough to proceed towards an indictment. Uh, So the key thing you're looking for here uh, as an American citizen is 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 the government serious enough to believe that they can they can mount a prosecutable case and actually seek an indictment and take this to court if that doesn't happen, then that's going to tell you a lot that's going to tell you that perhaps the foundations of the case weren't as sturdy as they should have been before they started down this path um, My concern is that that, in order to justify and make sure that it doesn't have the appearances of of a simple political, um, you know, I hate to use the word witch hunt because it's overused, but but it's just a, a, a government intrusion into trying to find documents and see what they might find. That they might go ahead and proceed towards indictment without really having necessary. Uh, evidence getting indictment out of a, a, a federal grand jury uh, sometimes isn't that difficult. Um, get, taking a case to court, where everything now is going to be public record, and securing a conviction, I see, John, it's just a monumental challenge for for the government here. Uh, it's, I wouldn't want to be the prosecutor that has to has to bring this case. Now, the only caveat I'll attach to that is. If they come up with something that is a serious, serious crime, there's evidence that he uh, you know, sold secrets or took bribes or, or something like that, then fine, have at it. He deserves what he gets. But absent that, as a document search, the fact that A, they initiated, and this is a two-part equation, A, they thought it was sufficient and wise to initiate an investigation, a federal FBI-led investigation, and B, if we can get over that hurdle, that they decided it was a good idea to send 30 armed agents into the residence and do an all-day search. Most people can't wrap their heads around that and with, and with good reason.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. That's the part that people are struggling with. But transparency always seems to be the thing that gets us to resolution. And the lawyers today said, there was a really interesting quote in one of the lawyers, said that, I think it was for the news media, but I think they said something that you've always preached for, and I think that, at the end of the day, when we get facts, we're always more educated in making a decision. But let's see if I can find the quote here. I had it in my notes here. Transparency serves the public interest in understanding and accepting the results. That's good for the government and for the courts. This is one of the lawyers for the media outlets. You can't trust what you can't see. And I think that's an interesting philosophy that a lot of people will say, all right, we did something big now. Could we at least have some justification for it? It sounds like maybe we're on the path toward it. That's going to be very, very interesting. Kevin, we really appreciate all you do. You're such gracious with your time, gracious person with your time, and you help us understand this so that we can be more educated citizens. I'm always grateful when we do this.
2: Of course, my pleasure.
0: All right, folks, we'll be right back at this to wrap things up for the day.
3: Okay, it's time to commit. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Justin News. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Justin News. Until then, if you need a news fix 24 7, we got you covered
3: Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.
0: At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion. Hunter Biden and the security and intelligence failures that preceded